So Tara, tell me, I've been living vicariously through you this year because I know you've gone to a ton of concerts and shows and I need to hear some highlights. What have you been enjoying this year? Yeah, um, oof. I've already seen a lot. Um, I had a bunch of tickets pre-pandemic, and so a bunch of them were rescheduled to to about now. Mm-hmm. And now everyone else is going on tour, so I'm really probably overdoing it on the shows. But you know me, I can't say no to music. It's, it's <laughs> my life. Um, but I think some of the highlights for me were or have been Number one, first and foremost, seeing Patti Smith live. Oh, cool. When was that? Oh, my goodness. At Big Ears Festival at the end of March. Nice. And it was monumental. I can't even explain how special it felt. I also read her book Kids before I went. So I was even more, you know, into it Mm -hmm. just because I... I you know knew about everything that she had gone through in her early years, and she just has had a huge influence on a lot of things: art, poetry, music, and yeah, that, that was the highlight so far of the year. Yeah, that's pretty legit. Yeah, I'm very jealous played, of that. Yeah, she played Gloria, which is amazing. Wow! But actually, just last night I saw Van Morrison, and. I know the man is problematic on what he thinks of the pandemic. I won't dive too much into that. But he also played Gloria because they, you know, that was his band when he was a singer in the band Them. Mm -hmm. In 1964, that was like the hit that launched them into success, which then launched him into success. And he played it. And so I was like, whoa, I've seen Gloria twice (laughs) in one year. And it just feels... I know. Feels crazy. I feel lucky. Just last night. How are Just you here in the store? What's wrong with I you? I know. I know. I'm a glutton for punishment. I will sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> oh, hi. Welcome to the store. Take a look around. Let us know if you need anything. I'm Tara. This is Natalie. Hello. We'll be back here chatting it up behind the counter. Uh, yeah. So those are my two, I think. Highlights, a lot more to come. I'm really excited about seeing Steely Dan and Stereolab and Paul McCartney and Elton John this year. I'm seeing a bunch oh my of legends. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, packing them all in. Yeah, <laughs> I got to bucket list. <laughs> but one band I know I'll never get to see because they stopped touring in 1984 is the Talking Heads. Oh. Yeah, 1984. We uh, we we missed that one by a long shot, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, Sadly, yeah. yeah, they would have been great to see live. And I know David Byrne still does things, but I keep missing him. Really? Yeah. How did you feel about his collaboration with Saint Vincent? That was like the last time I was really, really focused on his activity. Were you into that? You know, I. Hope there's no one in the store listening to me right now who really loves her, but I just cannot get super into her stuff. Oh, for real? Uh And I, but I've seen her like on a YouTube video, just shredding her guitar, just playing like really famous guitar licks and talking about some of the guitar parts that really influenced her. And man, I saw that video. I love that video. She shreds. She's really cool. She shreds. She's awesome guitarist, very talented musician. But the music that came from the mass education or whatever it's called to mm-hmm. after, mm-hmm. I haven't been into. Yeah, I can. I feel you there. There was there was a period of time where I mean, I still love her. I think she's super cool. Respect the hell out of her. But yeah, she she maybe lost me on a couple of albums, like some of the poppier yeah, ones. Yeah, it's the poppier ones. Um, but I think she's great, and I did quite like the music she did with David Byrne. Oh, that's interesting. Like, can you describe it a little? I was bit? I was into that album. Like, what is it? I like? don't know. It was just like the perfect, it was the perfect marriage of their 
quirks, <laughs> I, I guess, is really the best way to say it. It's it's not like easy listening. Right. But if you are already into like if you know David Byrne's shtick and you know her shtick, I think they really, really did a cool job at like creating something new that like highlights each of their uniqueness. I know it's kind of vague, but it's not for everyone. But I wasn't. Yeah. It. Um, I mean, I don't even think I really listened to it. So maybe I should put her own music aside and go in. And listen, yeah. To see what it you and think. See, yeah. yeah. Now with his influence, and like, see, see what they've you know managed to come up with together. Yes, <laughs> you should do that. So this weekend, I went to Shaky Knees, and I did happen to see Saint Vincent at the last Shaky Knees, which was in September of last year, and hmm. it was surprising to me because the first time I saw her, it was with a full band, and. It, it was really great, but that was again before the it's mass education, right? Miss I think education? So. No, that's Missy Elliott. <laughs> Miss, I think it's mass education. Okay. Mass education. Uh, and when it was very rock focused, and then this time when I saw her at Shaky Knees in September, it was very poppy. It was very disco-y, actually, dancey. She had a whole shtick yeah. on stage. Girls dressed like her. It, it was interesting. So it was a spectacle. Right. And I know that she has quite a lot of influences. But if we think about David Byrne and the Talking Heads, it's really interesting to think about how they've influenced so many people, probably including herself and many others. But who influenced the Talking Heads? Because they cover so many different sounds. Oh, absolutely. There's tons and tons of things we could talk about in there. What do you think? Should we... Uh Divide and conquer, see what we can yes, find. I think we should. It's a great plan. <laughs> Little divergent paths of the talking. Yeah. Heads. And you know, I am always down to talk about the rock and roll part because that's my Yeah. That's my fave. So let's get into it. Tell me all about talking heads and rock and roll. Okay. Well, let's just start from the very beginning. Okay. I, I want to highlight a little bit of each of the members and then how they formed and then just the early years because that was when I think that they were really the most rock forward, among other things. So we'll start with David since we were just talking about him. He was born in Scotland, raised in outer Baltimore. He was a former art student. He did a lot of performance art, um, which I think you can see that now even today in his Broadway type shows. Um, but his parents were immigrants from Scotland, and they're really open. And so their taste included a lot of American folk music. Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger. Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen that vigilante man? Um, he had a children's album that he would listen to all the time from Woody Guthrie. And I think... Some of that stuff, you know, before he got to college where he was really starting to listen to even more different music. But I think you can see some of the influence on that, on the music that he was that he was raised on now, especially, but a little bit in the talking heads as well. The the social consciousness, the political ruminations and and little details here and there in the talking heads, but even more so today in the music that he's doing lately. Mm-hmm. He's also talked about really loving the Beatles and John Cage. So those are just his childhood formulations when we're thinking about music and rock, more rock um, influences. Then we also have Jerry Harrison. He used to be in the Modern Lovers before he joined Talking Heads. And I really think a lot of that sound, he was playing guitar and keyboard. He, he really influenced a lot of their sound as well. He joined them after their first debut single, but before their first full recorded debut album. I see. Which did not originally okay. include that single. So that was a little tricky uh, way to say oh, that. That is strange. <laughs> yeah. But I'll get into that <laughs> later when I talk about their albums. And then Tina, Tina Weymouth played bass. She was given a guitar when she was young. Well, she it was for her and her sisters, but she really fought over it. She was kind of mopey as a teenager, and she has always said that that guitar was her boyfriend. She didn't really get into bass until much later. 
But I would say her influences seem like they are likely the greats like Donald Duck Dunn, who's a session bassist for Stax Records. Or James Jamerson, who was one of the best bassists in funk and soul. So you have the Motown and the Memphis influences that was like huge in their art rock world. And then we have Chris France, the drummer, who grew up, he was, he was a part of a military family, so he was kind of all over the place. He was in the North, and then once he was in the South, past Mason-Dixon, he listened to a lot of soul. But when he was in the North, he was listening to like Rolling Stones, the Beatles. And so you can hear a really good mix of how he was like listening to rock and then moved to the soul because he has that funk drum stuff down. He's really great at that. So yeah, those are their kind of like background highlights for each individual person. What are they bringing to the table? Well, it sounds like they're bringing a lot of, a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Like from the very beginning. Magic combination. Yeah. So they all met at RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. And then Jerry uh, actually was majoring in architecture at Harvard. So they are very art rock. Like it's, it's written all over their faces. <laughs> It's in their blood. It's in their blood. Yeah. And then originally, Chris and David were in a band called The Artistics. But then they later formed Talking Heads in 1975. And they were described as one of the most critically acclaimed bands of the 80s. They helped pioneer new wave music, which really, and we should get into this also, where did the term new wave come from? And why are they called new wave? Because it You know, when I think of new wave, I think of like synth and um, synth, like synth pop kind of stuff. I don't know. What do you think? When you hear new wave, that as like a genre, what do you think of? (laughs) This is going to be a really derpy answer, but I (laughs) I do think of Talking Heads because that's what they were always labeled. That was the label that I always saw associated with them anyway. So I just kind of like, that's what it is and never question it. But you bring up a really good point. How did we get to that, that title? What does that mean? Yeah. Well, so they were called punk music and like art rock, but there was a time when punk became sort of not a great thing because there's a lot of male chauvinism, just like gross things that came along with some of the punk rock that was happening at the time. And someone from Sire Records says, let's try, let's try to not use this word punk for certain things anymore. And because the Talking Heads were doing a lot of different elements to get sort of out of that punk image. Plus they had that clean cut image when they were on stage, they were wearing more kind of preppy look and not, you know, the glam rock, the punk rock of the time in New York, late seventies, early eighties. So this term new wave came and I think it actually came from France. You know, they were, they were calling things the nouveau vague music for things that included lots of different elements, which that's also how I consider post-punk to be. It's just like, it, it does include elements of punk, but other things. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I always, I kind of just had them all lumped together. I would think of like talking heads in the same way I thought of like Devo or Duran Duran and Blondie and just yeah. just anything that was kind of happening in that, that era, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I guess therein lies what New Wave is, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, according to the the definition that I've seen on the the internets or my other <laughs> my other favorite uh phrasing for the kind of music talking heads played that I see commonly nervous white guy music. <laughs> nervous which hi David. That's Barry. my favorite description. <laughs> right, exactly. The pioneer of the nervous white guy aesthetic. Yeah. So what I'm seeing is like the new wave wasn't really a, a musical genre, but kind of a catch-all term. For, it's like the fallout of punk. Right, exactly. <laughs> More romantically labeled as like underground rock or music that was like too radical for the glossy top 40 also. Right, but, true. So, so they were on the very beginning of this. So that's why I think a lot of histori- music historians call them this, you know, the one of the pioneers bands of of new wave and then so we all know too that they started they cut their teeth at cbgb's amongst their they actually opened their first show with the ramones and i think it was yeah I can't remember if it was dd or 
it was one of them, said, they're going to suck anyway. <laughs> they're going to suck anyway. I sure, they can open for us. They're going to suck anyway. <laughs> so they were less punk, more of the freeform experimentation of like late 60s rock, more psychedelia. They even used to cover bands like Velvet Underground, the Sonics, the Trogs. And Chris France would say, a lot of American rock bands are saying stuff like, we would never use synthesizers, but he always thought, like, why is that such a bad thing? We were always looking for new sounds and trying to come up with something unpredictable. So I never understood that, like, disdain for synthesizers. Yeah, what the heck? What's but, people's I mean, deal? Is that because it was such a big deal in the 80s with, like, how synth and pop really blew up? And that's where I guess I'm thinking new wave for me. That's what it is. It's like... Um, like Duran Duran or The Flock of Seagulls or <laughs> something like that. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite quotes from Björk when she would get criticized for having like too many synthesizers, too much, too much electronic garbage or whatever, and how it doesn't have any soul. That's always like people's first criticism. It doesn't have any soul. And she's like, well, if it doesn't have any soul, it's because nobody put it there. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That's it. That's She's a genius. I think that's, she is a genius. I just think that's such a bullshit argument <laughs> it is. against electronic instruments. It totally is. Um, all right. So let's just get into some of their first recordings and like, if, can we pull out any influences from those first recordings? The first single that was released is Love Goes to Building on Fire. I can't compare love. To me, I feel like you can hear sparks, like early sparks in this, maybe even a little bit later sparks. It's quite grandiose. It's really a big song for their first single to be released. I mean, compared to the debut, which some of the songs seems a bit seem a bit more simple, not like this one. But it, it's like sparks meets television. So let's hear a little bit of both and see if we can pull out elements of both. Here's Sparks. Okay, now let's listen to a little bit of television. So yeah, you hear a little bit of the kind of grandiose factor of the sparks, but then you hear the interwoven guitar parts in television that are in both, or are also in Love Goes to Building on Fire. And when was this released? This song was released as a single in 1977, but it was released seven months before their album, Talking Heads 77. So now we'll talk about that album. Again, Jerry wasn't on that first single, but he came in before the debut was recorded and he really filled out a lot of their sound, which I think, you know, the way he was playing, because he came from Modern Lovers, was, it did really sound like Modern Lovers and television, so many parts of it, and then also a lot of Velvet Underground. But this debut album was produced by Tom Bon Jovi. Yes, Bon Jovi's cousin. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Nice. Which, you know, I think they really wanted to work with John Cale, if I'm remembering this correctly, but the record company was saying, you know, we want to embrace as much of this popular, this popularity we have going. So let's stick with this more pop, popular album guy, Tom Bon Jovi. But he created a lot of anxiety for the band. He had even said something like Tina was playing the wrong bass parts. But these are from songs that they had been playing years before they're even recorded. Right. So it's like, dude, who even are That's you? Not cool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> In the song New Feeling, there's some horns that I think sometimes sound like Madness or The Clash, which is interesting because I feel like they were all kind of there at the same time. So I don't know if those are necessarily influences of the bands, but maybe the time. But then I also know they really got into reggae type beats and sounds so it may be like this early they're just getting into it kind of early exploration of like the horns from ska and reggae and that sort of thing that's happening over in England at the time right. with the clash mm -hmm. and madness and the specials and whatnot the song tentative decisions oh, the horn, 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 horn. 
me, it really sounds a lot like Roxy music. So, which is which is really interesting to me that they that this song sounds like Roxy music because they did end up recording their next two records with Brian Eno, who was mm-hmm. part of Roxy music at one point. Good ear. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like that whole time was like there's a lot of experimentation going on. There were a lot people were bringing in a lot more like international instrumentation and just trying things out. So there's going to there's going to be a lot of overlap. I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Psycho Killer is probably the hero track on this record. It blew up. A lot of people think that this song was written about Son of Sam and that maybe Talking Heads released it to get popularity because of all of the murders that were happening in the summer in New York. But they had written it years before, it had no relation to the son of Sam Killings. It's just weird timing. It's the coincidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But so David Byrne, when he wrote this song, Psycho Killer, he was really trying to conjure up Alice Cooper and how Alice Cooper was writing these sort of macabre, dark songs. He wanted to write like a murdery song, but I think uh, that's how I was going with the, um, with the lyrics. But Tina jumped in and helped with the French part of the lyrics. Um, and Chris helped as, as well. Let's listen to Psycho Killer. Psycho Killer. So David Byrne was really getting influence for his lyrics from Alice Cooper in this sort of dark, ballady, uh, murder, murder type song. Hmm. Um, then the fa 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 parts were likely influenced by Otis Redding. Could be also French influence, French pop, but I want to go with Otis Redding here for fa fa fa. So yeah, you got some more soul yeah. influence. Definitely. Oh, that's cool. I never made that that comparison before. Psycho Killer is like karaoke hall of fame. <laughs> really? Just anytime there's a mic in public. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. I just learned this recently that apparently someone gave Ice-T a copy of this record and he was listening to it on repeat one summer and I think they were they were brainstorming some lyrics for something for one of their songs and they were like we need a anti-cop anthem because it was like half you know around the the riots in LA and Rodney King and all that and so I think he was influenced from psycho killers lyrics to cop killer for cop killer oh for real yeah that was wild I had I never knew that that's crazy So that's their first record, Talking Head 77. Second record, more songs about buildings and food, 1978. And this was produced by Brian Eno. So he was obviously more on their level. He he studied painting in school. He was very experimental with music. So they were with their own people here recording recording Mm -hmm. their art rock with their art rock friends. Their art school. Kindred spirits. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit. Funkier this time around. Uh, we have a cover of Al Green's hit Take Me to the River, but it's definitely funkier. Brian Eater wanted it to start quiet and sort of start building up and it was tricky to do in the studio um, for a record in this era, but I think they made it really work. And yeah, let's just take a listen to both of those. Here is Take Me to the River by Talking Heads. And here's the Al Green version. So yeah, they really 
they really made it their own in a way. And I really like how David Byrne was talking about how he thought it was really surprising to hear the Reverend Al Green talking about, you know, religion, but also sex and take me to the river. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coincidentally, you know, they really wanted someone to work with them on the last record that was going to take them into popularity. This record with the experimental producer was more popular than their debut album. Take that, Tom Bon Jovi. Yeah. Yeah, this was a much better fit, for sure. So yeah, things got a little bit different on more songs about Billings and food. And then that brings, and that was 1978, so we're doing a sort of a yearly release here. The next one, also back with Eno again, is Fear of Music, which came out in 1979. I mostly just want to call out the song Life During Wartime. There are a lot of subtly disguised disco rhythms on this record, but Life During Wartime includes the line, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco. And there was quite the drama around disco at the time. And when you see the talking heads, you don't think that they are, you know, disco band or anything like that. And so when they would go and show up for these shows in other cities, they, you know, they would see banners like, this ain't no disco. And it's funny because they were misunderstood because they liked disco. They were misunderstood. or People thought it was a call to arms against the disco scene, but that was not the case with the Talking Heads at all. They really supported mm. the movement. They loved disco. They love also the rhythms of disco and music. So I just thought that was really interesting an important thing to call out from fear of music. But let's listen to a little bit of that. Yeah, I have to say uh, fear of music is definitely one of my favorite Talking Heads albums. I think this one and the next one, Remain in Light, are my two favorites. Yeah, Remain in Light, I think. Out of all of them. I agree. I think Remain in Light is my favorite. Yeah. So this is an interesting time, you know, after they've released Fear of Music. Um, and my whole approach for this, because I, I kind of want to dive into the international world beat kind of African influence specifically. And that is definitely a shift in sound that took place, you know, after Fear of Music, right? Yeah. So like you mentioned in the beginning, we talked about them kind of like playing their classic nervous white guy music up to that point <laughs> and then hooking up with Brian Eno and he produced what those those three albums right after the first one and so Remain in Light which came out in 1980 their fourth studio album but it was the third album produced by Brian Eno and so I really think Brian Eno was like the major catalyst for this this major shift in sound because after that meeting at the Ramones show for which Talking Heads was the opener, you know, they started hanging out and Brian Eno introduced the band to the legendary Fela Kuti. So I want to talk about him a little bit, but even before we get into Remain in Light, I think we kind of get a hint of things to come on Fear of Music, like especially the track Ezimbra. You can hear them kind of like experimenting with these sort of more tribal sounds. And that was definitely, I think, Brian Eno's influence. The band's fourth studio album, and it features one of their biggest hits out of their entire discography, Once in a Lifetime. So we all know Brian Eno, British musician, producer extraordinaire, right? Um, he introduced the band to the legendary Fela Kuti. So Fela Kuti is a Nigerian multi-instrumentalist, composer, political activist, presidential candidate, and just like so much more. Seriously, this man's life is completely wild. I strongly <laughs> advise if you have interest to check it out. It's a wild story. Um, let me see. Just a brief background. So he was born to very, very well-respected parents. They were like elite pillars of the community. Um, and he had two brothers. So his parents had a plan that they should all become doctors. And his two brothers did become doctors, but Fela had developed a passion for music very early on. Like by the age of eight, he was already playing the piano and the drums. So he ended up studying music at Trinity College in London. And while he was there, he formed a band called Kula Lobitos. 
which Fela fronted on trumpet. So the band played High Life, which is a style of dance music that originated in Ghana and then spread into Western Nigeria and was just like really thriving, really popular by the 1950s. And it, it features like those, those classic asymmetrical drum patterns that you hear in a lot of African music derived from the Yoruba people. So the Yoruba were, are one of the largest ethnic groups in Nigeria. And then that combined with the syncopated guitar melodies, you gotta have multiple guitars playing, add in lots of jazzy horns, some soca and calypso mixed in there, you know, you've got this, this beautiful African sound, right? So Kula Lobitos was really, really growing in popularity in the UK. And by the way, Kula Lobitos is the band that eventually became Africa 70, which I think is the, the band we most commonly associate with Fela Kuti. But it all started from that, that band and they, you know, had some inevitable lineup and name changes over the years. So let's fast forward a bit to the late 60s. So Fela decided to take his high life jazz to the States. And during that time, he discovered the black power movement. He discovered the writings of Malcolm X. Like he was a huge fan of Malcolm X, the Black Panther Party. And he himself being the son of a famous political activist and feminist, it's like he had that revolutionary spirit born and bred within him. Fun fact, <laughs> this was fun for me. Fela Kuti, his mother, she was the first woman to ever drive a car in Nigeria. Whoa, that's wild. Isn't that random, I mean, right? yeah, it's like, I mean, it's not wild. It's it's uh, interesting that it was- She was a badass. Of yeah. all the people, it's Fela Kuti's mom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This experience in the States inspired a real like significant shift in the, the tone of his music. And so from there on, he used his music to- kind of like battle the corruption of the Nigerian government. He became very militant and outspoken and, you know, expressed the plight of his fellow countrymen and women. So he had an album in 69. This was right before he returned to Nigeria called the 69 Los, Los Angeles Sessions. And I think this album and particularly the track My Lady Frustration. truly marked the birth of Afrobeat. And then in 1973, they released the album Gentleman, which is considered like the first fully formed Afrobeat album. So what's Afrobeat? It's the final form of this fusion of African high life with African-American jazz, soul, and funk that he really got exposed to while in the States. And then with some European instrumentational influences in there as well. So it's just like a really good melting pot of international sounds, right? So here I want to make sure I mention Tony Allen. Oh. So Tony Allen is a legend in his own right. He played the drums alongside Fela Kuti all the way back to Kula Lobitos when he, he helped actually form the band. And Tony Allen is largely responsible for this evolution of, of high life jazz into Afrobeat. There's this really cool video on YouTube um, where he demonstrates the five major drum patterns of Afrobeat. And like these patterns are part and parcel to this Afrobeat sound that he helped develop. And he talks about listening to other Nigerian drummers and just like feeling that something was missing and that something was the hi-hat. Like maybe they, they play it, but it always stayed closed. You know, they never like really manipulated it in any interesting kind of way. So he's figured out how to incorporate the hi-hat and, you know, peddling with it into his high life drum style. And it kind of just like completely shifted the way he moved at the drums and just changed his whole approach, you know, to the instrument. It's a really, really fun video. You should look that up. That's cool. I want to watch that. Yeah. So that is the birth of Afrobeat. And then at the same time, still branching off from this high life movement in Nigeria, we have another legendary musician emerging, King Sunny Ade. 
So the king part here is not just some like rock and roll moniker. This man is legit, actually Nigerian royalty <laughs> from the Adesida dynasty. So like Fela, he is a singer, songwriter, band leader, multi-instrumentalist, and arguably one of the most influential artists of all time. This man is like crazy prolific. He had a nightclub. He had his own record label. He already had like 40 albums under his belt before the release of Juju Music in 1982, which was his breakthrough major label debut album and like really launched World Beat in the U.S., so I want to give a shout out here to French producer Martin Messonnier, who has a much sexier name when said properly in French. <laughs> so Messonnier has had a long track record of working with huge African pop artists of the time, including Fela Kuti and many others. He introduced the synths and the drum machines into Saniade's well-established juju sound. It's interesting that you bring up this French producer. He's a producer? Mm -hmm. Because one of my favorite songs, probably of all time, I don't know, it's probably in the top 10, is La Retournelle by Sebastian Tellier, who is also a French producer, and Tony Allen plays drums on it. And I'm just wondering, oh, really? like, what is the, how do they, how'd they meet? Like, what, how does this partnership come together? And now this, this other French guy, yeah, that's interesting to me. I'll have to dig into that. Yeah, you should. I'm sure they were all in one another's orbit yeah, somehow or another. Yeah, and people were getting like really, really hype off of this African sound, you know, emerging and popping up and incorporating into a lot of Europop and things like that. So I'm sure these, these French producers are probably on top of it. So I want to point out here that the name Juju is not derived from the West African and South American spiritual practice, like that folk magic that where you use like amulets and charms and cast spells and things like that. But instead, it's from the Yoruba word that means throwing or something to be thrown. So what is juju music? It's a celebration. It's celebration music, praise music, sung predominantly in Yoruba, sometimes in English. Uh, again, those classic African polyrhythmic percussion highlighted by the talking drum, which is an indigenous Yoruba instrument. This is a very important piece. And you know what, when you were playing those samples, I just thought about this now, but when you were playing those clips from the first, I think, Talking Heads album, mm -hmm. I could kind of hear some of that goom, like kind of that glug <laughs> oh, yeah. sound in, in some of those bass notes that reminded me of this talking drum. So it's like already we're getting like hints of this, of the sound, I think. Interesting. All the way from the very beginning. Huh. Now I need to go back and listen again. Yeah, See yeah, I just, I just noticed that. Notes, yeah, or those sounds. So talking drum, then you've got those layers of needling electric guitar lines, no fewer than four. And again, we, we talked about that already. They have mm -hmm. multiple guitars playing completely different things on top of each other. Um, pedal steel guitar, synthesizers, and of course, the African call and response vocal style, which the talking heads played with quite a bit as well. Yeah. So Ade took all of this and merged it with quite a modern pop vibe. And here we have another evolution of that high life sound. Uh, lyrically, the songs are often based on like traditional religious proverbs and poetry. So it's cool. It's like he's created this record of the Yoruba people's oral tradition, right? And which is part of the reason why he's so beloved in Nigeria. There's a McLean article called The African Influence. And Ade says... We wanted African music to be internationalized, so we used the technology, but the root stays the same, and the root baby is the rhythm. I said baby. He didn't say baby. Oh. <laughs> it, just felt, it just felt right. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of like a very, very broad, very general overview of what was happening in, in Nigeria and how these sounds kind of like, you know, trickled into other parts of the world. I think you can definitely hear undertones of that, that complex syncopated Afrobeat rhythm throughout Remain in Light, especially mm -hmm. in that first track, Born Under Punches. They just come out the gate with it, right? Don't you think really hardcore? Yeah. Um, and like for once in a lifetime, I think I can hear more of that like gentler dance groove. And it's almost like this ambient kind of flow that you get from the juju music. Yeah. You were saying, Ade was saying they wanted it 
that to be, you know, internationally known, uh, globally accepted. And then having those same inspired African polyrhythms and those influences on this album Remain in Light, it was so critically acclaimed that they were merging these cultures. Library of Congress Mm -hmm. even deemed the album to be culturally, historically, and artistically significant, and it's it's in, in preservation. So I just think that's amazing. And also, this is, I think, one of the least selling albums at the time, least performing album in sales at the time, but it's still gone gold. You know, it's still wildly successful. That's pretty brave of them, you know? I agree, yeah. To have such an intense change like that and just just go all the way with it. Yeah. They get a lot of respect for that. Very cool. But, you know, I I think, um, so we know Brian Eno was really driving this forward um, and pushing the Talking Heads evolution. If you really want to hear like these seeds being planted with Brian Eno and Talking Heads, listen to the album he and David Byrne collaborated on called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. I think these African influences are super evident throughout that album, particularly. Um, it came out in 1981, but it was recorded right before the Remain in Light sessions. So I think they were really getting a vibe and kind of like a, a groove together, working together. Some people would even say that David Byrne's stage demeanor was partially modeled after Fela Kuti. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Kind of like his distinctive movements and body postures. What? Um, Oh, man, I had no idea. Yeah. So uh, another similarity, and you talked about this a bit as well, is this notion that like the music is fun and pretty on the surface, but lyrically there's there's a darkness or like a soberness to it, um, whether it's political or existential, which is the perfect segue into my next artist, Gene Redpath. And you tipped me off to this one. You mentioned this to me. Um, Gene Redpath. So like David Byrne, Jean Redpath was born in Scotland. Uh, she was a Scottish folk singer and musician who recorded like 40 albums. She was also a university educator. Grew up in a very musical home. Her father played the, the hammered dulcimer, which I am currently getting an itch to buy. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but I have this new obsession with hammered dulcimers. I think they're just incredible. Um, so I think this is a sign for me to buy one also. Yeah, I think it is um, And her mother, yeah, I'm just going to take it that way. Her mother taught her and her brother many traditional Scots songs. And while doing medieval studies at the University of Edinburgh, she met a famous Scottish poet and folk song collector who'd been working there. And she just fell in love with the archives of folk music available and she basically learned every single Scottish folk song in existence. What? Wow. Pretty much. She had like, she had over 400 songs in her repertoire, as well as the related folklore for each one. So she just had this insane body of knowledge about traditional Scottish music. That's cool. She, she set out to record the complete collection of songs by Robert Burns, who's, you know, Scotland's revered bard. She had, they had 23 volumes planned to record all of these songs, um, but sadly had to stop at volume seven due to the death of her collaborator, Sarie Hovey, when he passed away. They had arranged 323 songs, which is just like wild to me. But she's known for meticulously reconstructing these traditional songs that would have otherwise been lost and as such is recognized as the foremost interpreter of traditional Scottish music. Um, Very impressive career, played all over the world in all the prestigious venues. She was hanging out with Bob Dylan and Ramblin' Jack Elliott. So just just very beloved all over the world. I have a quote from uh, Stephen Holden of the New York Times describing her voice that I thought was really, really pretty. He says, her voice is more than merely pretty. Her sweetness is backed by a fiber and quiet determination that lend everything she sings a deep lived in quality. 
With her arching sense of melody and plain, unsyncopated phrasing, she is able to imbue everything she touches with a mysterious, slightly mournful quality that is the quintessence of a certain kind of folk classicism. So the connection to Talking Heads. Uh, David Byrne talks about how he grew up loving Celtic music, and he named Redpath's song The Rowan Tree as a song he couldn't live without during an appearance on the BBC's Desert Island Discs. Um, and he talks about there being just a strong Celtic influence in many of the melodies he's written. He says, the Scottish influence was a big part of my parents' record collection. They didn't have Scottish bagpipes or anything. They were more interested in Scottish roots music, Woody Guthrie, Ewan McCall, and different people from that era who were writing folk songs that were vaguely political, but also beautiful. I realized that this sounds very palatable and pretty on the surface, but there's something darker going on underneath, which is a theme we've now seen like yeah. through all of these influences, right? That's true. Yeah. Uh, sadly, Jean Redpath passed away quite recently in 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is just a, a snapshot of the international influence on Talking Heads. There are plenty of other mu musicians who made an impact on their sound. You mentioned reggae for sure. Um, legend Lee Scratch Perry. Yeah. Also very, very wild character. Uh, yes. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> I mean, and yeah. uh, Bob Marley was working on this record with Bob them. Marley as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, also German musician and bassist from the band Can, Holger Jukai. Big influence as well. There's plenty more out there, but I think the store is going to oh, close Wait, Holger Solze? Holger Solze? Holger. Is it CZ something? Same guy? CZ UK. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Jukai. Yeah. Wait, he was, wait, what, what was that about him? He was just, he was another influence that I came across <sighs> kind of reading up on this. Um, and yeah, this record in particular has so many influences outside of just the epic global influences that you've, you know, that you've touched on. There's even the song Cross-Eyed and Painless. Um, that sort of, it's almost like a rap that he does. It sounds, it sounds a lot like Curtis blows the brakes. I mean, it totally does. <laughs> That's funny. You needed to bring the mic a little closer to his mouth though. In the first one. Oh yeah. Sure. Can you hear what he was saying? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I never would have thought of that. There's the um, Houses in Motion that incorporates, um, oh wait, no, Listening Wind that has some Arabic even elements to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, so yeah. there's so it's many influences we could cover with Talking Heads. We, we just touched on a few, <laughs> a few, we touched on very many. They've influenced many people. They were influenced by many people. They changed. They really influenced music and music history, and they did a lot. And I'm glad that they were as passionate as they were and excited to do new things because now we have these wonderful albums. I think Talking Heads is one of those groups that have permeated every household, like regardless of race, class, whatever, everybody knows burning down the house. Yeah. Everyone, you know? Yeah, when, you're a big started, deal. when you started that sentence, I was like immediately thinking of burning down the house. That, that yeah. to me is like a frat guy song. I don't know why. What is, was it on but Porky's But everyone knows it. Yeah. <laughs> or know. Nerds or something. <laughs> Revenge of the Nerds. I, it, feel like I would believe it was on Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> I feel like the lead nerd was very David Byrne-esque. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I love those movies. I, I, they probably don't age well, but I remember liking oh, them. Oh, I, was I young. know they do not age well at all. <laughs> I know. Yeah, they are household name. Yeah, for sure. I think that's pretty major. When even if they don't know, even they, even if they couldn't like name the band, they knew the song, and that's that's some pretty um, impressive reach if you think about it. Yeah, definitely. And when you inspire Ice T, hey man, <laughs> you know you have some reach. I ain't mad at it. <laughs> Me either. All right. Well, let's call it a day. This is a very exciting conversation. Ooh, are we going to do recommendations? Oh, should we? Let's do it. Let's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got one. We should restock the employee recommendation shelf. It's been 
We haven't updated it for a whole month, so let's do that. And I actually have one. What you got? Okay. So in keeping with the theme of today's conversation, I found something super cool. There is a Beninese singer-songwriter named Angelique Kijo, who in 2018 recorded a full Afrobeat version of Remain in Light. So she loved this album and she definitely heard this African thread throughout the tracks that really resonated with her. So she was inspired to just like take it all the way and do a full on Afrobeat version of the album. And it totally works. It's so much fun. Highly recommended. Yeah, Angelique Kijo. Yes, awesome. No, that's great. I am going to recommend Microtronics Volumes 1 and 2 from the band Broadcast. They're no longer active, but these are recordings that are from the um, from some of their tour-only CDs, and they were pressed to vinyl. And there's a lot of just jazz, percussion, experimentation, sort of free-form stuff happening on this these these um, compilations of recordings. So highly recommend it. Very interesting, especially if you just love broadcast or anything super analog, electronic sounding. Check it out. Microtronics Volume 1 and 2 broadcast. Cool. Cool. I will listen to it. Nice. All right. Time to lock up the store. Uh, Thanks for shopping. Have a good evening. Goodbye, everyone. And come back real soon. Bye. Bye. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.